0: Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. If you want to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12, in the red Bibles in the pews, it's 1139, page 1139. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good Form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then encourage. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, patient serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Marla, And uh, hi, everyone. It's great to be with you. Um, and uh, having chapel, as was said, is, it feels like such a privilege, doesn't it? Uh, Romans 12. I'm going to preach Romans 12 uh, today, tomorrow, and Thursday. Uh, different verses each day, don't fear. And uh, basically, it's an extraordinary chapter, isn't it? We've just heard it read. Hopefully, you'll be here the next two days. You'll hear it read again and then again. And it's at the key turning point in Romans. It's probably the biggest, therefore, in. English literature, when Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, therefore, so in broad brushstroke terms, up until Romans uh, end of chapter 11, Paul's been telling the Roman Christians about the gospel and what to believe, that they're justified by grace through faith, that not of themselves, it's the gift of God, and uh, he talks about the precedent of Abraham and David, and uh, the fact that all of the world needs God's righteousness. Yep, so you've got all of that happening. And then from 12, 1 and following, he switches gears and says, "Right, in the light of all that, therefore, I want you to live this way. It's a slight exaggeration because parts of Romans 1 to 11 also address conduct. Chapter 6 says that we should... uh, uh, give the members of our bodies to righteousness, etc. And there's lots of stuff about conduct in chapter one. So I'm kind of undercutting my own sermon here. And then in Romans 12 and following, there's also a lot, a lot of doctrine as well, uh, because you get the uh, the lordship of Christ and the kingdom of God and all sorts of stuff, the glory of God. But in broad terms, that's basically where we're heading. How then should we live? As Francis Schaeffer put it all those years ago, in the light of the good news of the gospel. Uh, I've entitled today's sermon, The Good Life, and the word good does pop up three times in our passage. We're told that living God's way proves that his will is good, in verse 2, and then in verses uh, uh, 9 and 21, the word good comes up again. Of course, the gospel is good news. Paul talks about the good person, chapter 5. God wants our good, in chapter 8. We're to be wise about what is good, in chapter 16. The good life was something that was discussed in the ancient world. So Aristotle, uh, Plato and their followers debated whether the good life is really about health and beauty or whether it's about virtue. And in our day, positive psychology has tried to focus on what the good life might actually look like. Uh, what does it mean to flourish? That's kind of language comes up these days. Certainly everyone wants to lead a good life Everyone wants it for their children. If you Google the good life, the good life is something that satisfies and fulfills you. Um, And more cynically, the good life is about being rich and living it up. Yep. So what is the good life, according to Paul, in the light of the gospel that he's expounded in chapters 1 to 11? Well, in short, the good life is the life that pleases God. You can see that. Uh, where Paul says that in verse 1 of chapter 12, that we're to present our bodies as a sacrifice which is pleasing to God. And then uh, right at the end of verse 2, he says that doing that will lead to showing that God's will for our lives is pleasing. So the good life is a response to the gospel. It's a life that pleases God. And Paul says elsewhere, I make it my ambition to please God the Lord. So today what I'd like to do is look just at verses 1 and 2 and ask ourselves, what does Paul tell us about the good life? Now don't panic, but it's a seven-point sermon. Some of the points are quite short, I assure you, and I'll balance things out in the next two days. So today I have one point for every 0.29 verses. Uh, Tomorrow there'll be three points Uh, In nine verses, that's an average of three. And then on Thursday, an average of 6.5, because I'll have two points on 13 verses. Why do I feel like I'm the only one interested in that? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so seven things about the good life. First of all, the good life requires some urging. So have a look. Therefore, I urge you. So Paul says that actually the good life is not something, it's not kind of a set and forget project. In fact, there are certain things about our condition which make urging necessary. The fact that we're under the power of sin, we're under the judgment of God, uh, the sin, uh, sin, the world and the devil are against us. And Paul does a lot of urging in Romans. I don't know if you've seen the Olympics, but it's the most underwhelming Olympics ever because there's just no urging going on, is there? I was watching the high jump the other night, and high jumpers do this traditionally, I think. They kind of get the whole crowd going like this. And there's like three people. <laughs> and the guy went to jump and just went under the bar. No, he didn't. That's not true. But, <laughs> but basically, the, the good life does require urging, doesn't it? And that's one of the things we have built into our weekly life as believers, that we hear exhortation. So the word to urge here is about encouraging, beseeching, to use an old-fashioned word, imploring, one of the Bible versions puts it. And I think that's worth recognising, that you will not live a good life without urging. The second thing is the good life is lived together. See, Paul says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters... So it's not an individual sport, just to keep my Olympics obsession going. It's a team sport to live the good life. The good life is life together. And I think it's very significant that Paul uses this term brothers and sisters for us as believers. He's got a lot of other alternative uh, labels for us. Could have called us believers, saints, the church, disciples, the way, Christians, all of those are used in Acts, but certainly the favourite one across the New Testament is to depict us as a family, and I think that's very significant because in the ancient world, it was unprecedented. The uh, um, ancient philosophical schools did not refer to each other as brothers and sisters. They referred to each other as friends, and Paul actually seems to avoid using that language, Jews in the ancient world, they did refer to each other as brothers and sisters, but that's because they had the bloodline, yep, of brothers and sisters. But we're part of a family, and families are the closest thing on earth in terms of human relationships, and siblings in particular are full of mutual care and support for each other most of the time. Yep, And the Bible's not naive about this. It depicts families as pretty dark at points and you get some awful, right from the book of Genesis on, uh, sibling rivalries, if you like. But nonetheless, the appeal here is to us as a family. We're meant to look out for each other's interests, to support one another, to live harmoniously together. They have those kind of intimate connections that come through with a family. So the good life... Uh, first of all, requires urging. Secondly, it's lived together. Thirdly, the good life is a response to the gospel of God's mercy. See what he says? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. And uh, the mercy of God is about his great concern over our plight and misfortune. It's him giving us something in spite of our disobedience. A different words used for mercy in chapters 9 to 11, but that word, which is a very similar concept, turns up six times and three of them underscore this very thing. Uh, just one example would be Romans 11 verse 30, uh, that uh, you were at one time disobedient to God, you've now received mercy. And mercy is such a terrific thing, friends, and it's the very basis on which we are to live the good life. Uh, Paul doesn't just issue commands about how to live. He, he does what we might call theological ethics or as our uh, the Roman Catholics call moral theology. And that's what we see in Romans. Paul doesn't just tell people what to do. It's all done on the basis of who we are in Christ and the great debt we owe to God, the gratitude that flows from recognising that debt. It uh, reminds me when I was in... Um, I was going to say hibernation, it wasn't quite hibernation, it was quarantine for two weeks. Um, I'm sure you know about it now, I tell everyone about it. It was awful. Yep. So quarantine was just awful. Day one, Toby got tested, so glad he failed that test. Day 13, he got tested again, he failed that test as well. And then on day 14, I got a phone call. It was amazing. This woman said, hello, I'm just ringing up to say, because of Toby's uh, uh, test result, Uh, that now you're free at midnight, Uh, 11.59 is your last moment in quarantine. I fell in love with a woman. (laughs) Honestly, if I hadn't been married, I would have proposed on the street. (laughs) And that's the point with the gospel. Why is it that when we bring the good news of the gospel, that people don't embrace us? Because they don't realise the plight they're in, that they're under sin, the penalty and the power of sin and under God's wrath, yep, and the mercy of God is the basis on which we're to live the good life. Fourthly, the good life requires requires total dedication as an act of worship. This is probably the most famous bit where Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, So the whole business of sacrifice in the ancient world was very much in the air. And even in Paul's letter, Paul talks about the sacrifice of Christ in chapter 3 and in chapter 8 at the beginning. So uh, Christ was offered as a sin offering in our place, as our representative. So an enormous amount of teaching in Romans about those things. And then Paul reminds us, well, actually where to live as living sacrifices. Now, when I grew up, the line on this one is kind of cute. It's that, you know, that problem with a living sacrifice? It always crawls off the altar. Now, that's cute, but it's just rubbish. So uh, don't use that line, because (laughs) what Paul's really saying with living is that now that we're alive from the dead, yep, we are to live as those who are alive to God. But nonetheless, there is this point that uh, Paul wants us to live fully dedicated lives, daily this is kind of Paul's version of take up your cross daily yep it's a, it's a really powerful illustration of the dedication of every bit of us to God's service Fifthly the good life is countercultural Paul says in verse two do not conform to the pattern of this world now culture is a really powerful thing isn't it And I love the Ridley community for all sorts of reasons. One of the reasons I love it is that we have so many different cultures represented. And you get to know, um, you you get to realise, you know, you know how we we always do that without thinking about it? Maybe there's something we should think about. Yep. So Nat and I had our honeymoon, uh, we were very fortunate, on an island in the Fiji Islands. Yep. Mana Island. You arrive and you're greeted with this huge Fijian playing a little ukulele, sweat dropping down his face and uh, singing like an angel. It's just amazing. And so many things about Fiji were amazing. Uh, The food, the music, Um, two things stood out in particular, their approach to time and their gait. So in Fiji, you walk very slowly And initially, I found my frantic pace a little bit out of place. So over time, I just absorbed the culture and ended up walking at Fijian pace and uh, turning up late for everything was just fine. (laughs) When I got back, it lasted a couple of weeks. And then I got back into frantic Western uh, behaviour. But nonetheless, you can see that there's so much about what we do that is unconscious. Taste in food, music, games, holidays our concepts of time, friendship, fairness, justice, the style of our nonverbal communication, our facial expressions, eye contact, the way we raise children, decision-making, problem-solving, attitudes to different age groups, competition, authority, work, death. All of this is basically, if you think of culture as an iceberg, it's all below the surface. And the problem is most of it's kind of neutral, some of it's not. yeah, And like it or not, we kind of imbibe, not sure if imbibe with the iceberg works, but uh, we we kind of take on board a lot of things that are really unhelpful because of our culture. The world is what Paul is saying. So part of our culture opposes God. So which parts? just just quickly, because we don't have, Um, several hours, but it would be great to explore this together. What about our culture is forcing us to live in ways that aren't pleasing to God? Uh, 1 John 2 is a great verse for this. Uh, 1 John 2, 16. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those three things our culture pushes us towards. Lust, greed, and pride. Yep. I'm, I'm speaking personally. The culture tells us, our world tells us, we have to satisfy our desires. That's the good life. Getting what you want, sexually and in every other way. Yep. And uh, our culture tells us that the more material possessions you have, the better off you are. In fact, we use that expression. You're better off. Um, And our culture also tells us that the goal in life is to be exceptional. Most of the private schools in my suburbs around me I looked this up, they all promise to make your, stud- your, your beautiful sons and daughters exceptional. It's going to be pretty tough, I think, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no reflection on Toby, but uh, basically we can't all be exceptional. So, so how are we going to deal with this? The next, the sixth point about the good life is the key, and it's this. The good life begins with mind renewal. Did you see that? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By thinking differently, we will behave differently. So instead of thinking I need to satisfy my every desire, I'm to treat younger women as sisters with all purity. Yep. I'm to deny myself and take up the cross. Instead of thinking that material possessions are the most important thing about me, I'm to take Jesus' words to heart where he says... Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Think differently, you behave differently. Instead of thinking that I have to be exceptional and excel and stand out from the crowd, I need to take to heart what Jesus said, the last shall be first. So mind renewal, friends, is absolutely where it's at. Thinking leads to behaving. Paul doesn't just tell people what to do. He knows we behave in a certain way because we believe certain things. We think in a certain way. So we need to know doctrine for all sorts of reasons. One of them is so that our minds can be renewed and then our behaviour will be transformed. And the seventh point is the good life proves that God's way of living is the best way to live. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Pleasing God is the good life. It's not the easy life, necessarily, but it is the good life. Now, really interestingly, I don't know if anyone else follows these things, but studies of happiness and well-being have increasingly found that doing what God says does lead to a pretty good life. Yeah, so for example, um, Rebecca McLaughlin, anyone know that name? She's uh, she's um, an apologist second only to John Dixon. She's written a book for teenagers as well as for adults. I'm reading the teenagers one and uh, it's just brilliant. She points out putting loving relationships first, helping others, living for something bigger than yourself, forgiving others, being thankful, not loving money and being generous, makes you, the studies have found, happier, healthier, longer living, and less likely to suffer depression. Now, don't hear me wrong. Life's not easy for anyone, okay? But I think it is true, and our passage says it, that the good life proves that God's way of living is the best way to live. Now, there are basically three sorts of Christians, I reckon. There are heart Christians head Christians and hands Christians. Sounds like a um, a Scandinavian. Anyway, Reese knows where I'm going there. Anyway, so so basically (laughs) a hand Christian, it's not going to work, is it? So a Christian who concentrates on their hands is someone who likes doing things. The Christian life is all about doing stuff. Yep, and Romans 12 is fantastic for that. It tells you to be hospitable and to love your enemies and to love one another. So it's just right there. And, and I know Christians who are exactly like that. Then you get heart Christians who are often the worship leaders. Yep. I don't know if that's the case in our. I think we're we we're, we're just happy to have anyone do it. And they all do a <laughs> they all do a great job, I hasten to add. But heart Christians love the experience of God. Life is about experiencing God. And then you've got head Christians. Head Christians are about knowing stuff. Yep. And uh, they think the most important thing in life is to know things, knowing God, etc. Yeah. All three are right. But this passage tells us that you have to get them in the right order. Yep. Head Christians have to realize. It's meant to change the way you behave. Otherwise, it's pointless. Yep. It's just going to have knowledge puffing you up. Heart Christians have to realise that worship isn't just praising God in uh, a kind of uh, um, excited, I uh, can't think of the word, uh, an amazing way. Yep. It's, it's about all of life. All of our life is to worship and praise God, not just when we're singing or in some ecstatic state. And then, hands Christians, yes, hands Christians are right, but uh, the hands are an end, not a means. The means to that end is your mind and your heart, and then we're all meant to get our hands dirty. I just want to read the passage, where's it gone? Okay, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let, let's just hear it together and ask God to convince us of these truths and to make changes in our lives. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen.